welcome to the Michigan Murderers. I'm Laura. And I'm Stephanie. And welcome back to the air in my nose. I can breathe for the first time in a week. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> There's nothing more infuriating than when you're sick and you're like, I just want to breathe through my nose again. And what's funny is as you're getting better, I'm getting worse. Oh no! Because it is pollen season here and I had the worst sneeze attacks today. Where I actually almost peed my pants from sneezing. Because you know the mom sneezes. Oh, I yeah. I know those. And I was losing it. And I couldn't stop sneezing. And I'm like, this damn pollen here in the south. I need to come back to the north. I can't. I can't do it. <laughs> yeah. That, that happened to me with my cold. There was definitely. And it wasn't from sneezing. It was I coughed so much. And sorry mm. if there's any guys listening or people that haven't had a child growing inside of them but that it happens <laughs> yeah it happens ladies it happens so you have something to no, ladies and gentlemen <laughs> you know i mean i guess it could technically happen to anybody yeah. i'm sure <laughs> but yeah i'm not a i'm not a guy so i wouldn't know if they also have those issues where they <laughs> sneeze or cough too much and then they pee i i wouldn't know either <laughs> And uh, we're recording at night again. So uh, tonight I have a truly, like the basic bitch that I am, I have a seltzer. And I'm lame and have school in the morning and work afterwards. So I have this nice, great value Walmart brand uh, purified drinking water. Mmm. Healthy. Mm. Tasty. And there's there's water in this. <laughs> Seltzer is water. Tasting kind. I am right. I am hydrating at the same time. So, you know, there's that. Absolutely. And I can't remember who goes first. Just because I was sick and I kept pushing back our recording of this next Midwest episode. So um, Go straight ahead. The, the script is going to be new to me because I don't remember what I wrote. <laughs> I was in a haze of, you know, cough syrup and all that fun stuff. So I wrote I wrote some things and I'm going to read it now. <laughs> <laughs> so today I'm going to talk about Donald Harvey. Donald Harvey was born on April 15th, 1952 in Hamilton, Ohio to Ray and Goldie Harvey and was the oldest of three children. He grew up in the tiny Ap- Appalachian? Appalachian? Appalachian. Appalachian. I don't know why I want to say Appalachian. <laughs> I, it's in there. It's in my head. Because we're northern. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> the town of Boonville, Kentucky, where his parents were struggling tobacco farmers. Harvey, this is bad in a lot of these stories. Harvey was sexually molested by both an uncle and a neighbor from the ages of 5 to 18, but did not tell anyone about the abuse except his sister, and only after the abuse had already stopped. Mm. Harvey dropped out of school in the ninth grade, but earned a GED in 1968. Harvey was arrested for burglary in 1971, and soon after, Harvey enlisted in the United States Air Force, but was discharged after nine months due to two suicide attempts. 
Wikipedia said, this is the weird part. It said his suicide attempts and other mental health issues had something to do with Harvey not coming to terms with his homosexuality. Mm. Personally, I thought it probably had more to do with the repeated sexual abuse, you know, as a child. But I'm also not a professional, so take what I say with a grain of salt. But I'd say his, you know, his homosexuality isn't really relevant to what he did and what I'm going to talk about. But I'm, I'm pretty much just including that part because he has a partner that's mentioned later. And it might come out of left field if you're like, wait, what? <laughs> that was missing. But Harvey worked in factories for a while. But after being laid off from his factory job, Harvey began working in hospitals. And his first medical job was as an orderly at the Marymount Hospital in London, Kentucky, where his grandfather was at one time. Harvey later confessed that during the 10 months he worked at the hospital, he killed at least a dozen patients. Oh, wow. Yeah. Harvey claimed he killed out of a sense of empathy for those who were terminally ill, but at the same time also admitted that many of the killings were committed due to anger at the victims. So those two things don't go together. No, absolutely not. Like, you're... You're not doing it out of wanting to care for these people that are terminally ill. You're just ticked off. And in a 1997 interview with the Cincinnati Post, Harvey said he checked on a stroke victim and the man rubbed feces in his face. So Harvey became so angry that he smothered the man. Oh, my gosh. And in the interview, he said it was like it was the last straw. I just lost it. I went to help the man, and he wants to rub that in my face. And after the murder, Harvey cleaned up the patient and got into the shower before notifying the nurses. No one suspected Harvey. Three weeks later, he disconnected the oxygen tank at an elderly woman's bedside. After getting away with the first two murders, he got more bold from then on. Harvey had no specific type of target. His victims included men and women of all ages, races, ethnicities, and backgrounds. Harvey did not use any particular modus operandi and used many methods to kill his victims, including, this is a horrible list here, arsenic, cyanide, insulin, suffocation, miscellaneous poisons, morphine, turning off ventilators, and administration of fluid tainted with hepatitis B and or HIV, which resulted in a hepatitis infection, but no HIV infection and illness rather than death. In oh, this is the particularly brutal one. In one case, after a patient hit him with a bedpan, he went in at night and inserted a coat hanger into their catheter, causing an abdominal puncture and subsequent peritonitis. Oh my god. Yeah. To me, that was the worst one more than like arsenic cyanide poisons. Yeah. Like that brutal to do to a patient. Just sickening beyond belief. Yeah. Harvey most often used cyanide and arsenic, administering them with food or via injections. In 1975... Harvey moved back to Cincinnati, Ohio, and got a job working at the Cincinnati VA Medical Hospital. He had many different duties as a housekeeping aide, nursing assistant, 
cardiac catheterization technician and autopsy assistant. With his night shift schedule, he had little supervision and access to different areas of the hospital. Over the next 10 years, Harvey would go on to murder at least 15 patients at the hospital. Harvey kept a diary of his crimes, detailing how he murdered them. He also studied medical journals, helping him learn how to conceal the murders. Harvey also collected 30 pounds of cyanide that he kept at home for safekeeping. He would make the, uh, the cyanide mixture at home, put it in a vial, and then bring it in the hospital to use on his victims. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. And Harvey, oh, good old Harvey, didn't just stick to hospital patients. In the 1980s, after he suspected Carl Hoeller, his lover and roommate, of cheating on him, he poisoned Hoeller's food with small doses of arsenic so he would be too ill to leave their apartment. Wow. He also poisoned two of his neighbors, sickening one, Diane Alexander, by putting hepatitis serum in her drink and killing the other, Helen Metzger, by putting arsenic in her pie. Wow. Seemed like anybody that ticked him off would be poisoned. Exactly. In April 1983, after an argument with Hoeller's parents, he began to poison their food with arsenic. Shocking. Yeah. Hoeller's father, Henry, suffered a stroke on May 1st. Harvey went to visit him in the hospital and put arsenic in his pudding before leaving. And Henry Hoeller died later that night. Harvey continued to poison Hoeller's mother, Margaret, on and off over the next year, but did not kill her. In January 1984, Hoeller broke up with Harvey and asked him to move out. Harvey became angry and spent the next two years trying to kill Hoeller. Holy shit, man. Yeah. While leaving work on July 18, 1985, security guards became suspicious and checked his bag as he left work. They found a pistol, hypodermic needles, surgical scissors and gloves, a cocaine spoon, medical texts, occult books, and a serial killer biography. <laughs> Harvey was charged a fine for the firearm on hospital property and was given the option to resign or be fired. This is the oh, this bad part of the hospital. The incident wasn't noted on his work record. And the hospital chose not to investigate if Harvey committed any other crimes while working there. The fuck? So, seven months later, Harvey got a job as a nurse's aide at Drake Memorial Hospital in Cincinnati. Because of course he did. Uh-huh. Of course he did. That's That was where he went to uh, get away with killing people. So, because it wasn't reported... His employers were unaware of the incident at the Cincinnati VA Medical Hospital. Over the next 13 months, Harvey murdered another 23 patients. Oh my god. The numbers are staggering. Yeah, that's what's like blowing my mind right now. And even more surprising for me, I don't remember hearing about this guy. Because we hear about the Bundys, the John Wayne Gacy's, the BTK... You know, all of those were well aware of who they were. And for some reason, this one flew under the radar. And I don't know if it was because his killing grounds or whatever you want to call them was in a hospital. I think that's exactly what it is. It was, you know, 
probably quote unquote less exciting to the media and to the police because it's not like a cat and mouse chase game. It's most people were thought to have died differently. And so they just let it go. And then when it came to light, they're like, oh, dang, this is bad. But oh, well. Yeah, I don't know. It's just is it is it not sexy enough Right, (laughs) that we just don't hear about it? But that's a lot of people that when you're in a hospital, you're trusting the staff there to take care of you and want to make you better. And for people like this that go out of their way to harm their patients is just you don't even want to think about it Mm because you're at a place where you're trying to get help. So that just makes it even even worse for me than some stranger finding you, you know, that kind of thing. You're trusting these people to save your life. It's just awful to me. But in March 1987, after keeping his crimes hidden for 17 years, Harvey thankfully made a mistake. An autopsy was performed on patient John Powell, who had died after spending several months on life support following a motorcycle accident and was starting to recover. The coroner noticed a faint scent of almonds during the autopsy. Testing revealed large amounts of cyanide in his system. Harvey became a person of interest after looking into hospital staff. Investigators learned Harvey's nickname was the Angel of Death because he happened to be around when people died. But that doesn't uh, (laughs) make you suspicious. You think? Yeah. Well, exactly that. You would think... All these people are dropping. He is constantly the one around them. Maybe you should start looking into the deaths of these people. Yeah, I wonder if it would be like, hey, we're having a lot more patients die than usual this past year. <laughs> Does nobody and I don't think it's, you know, right. And I don't think it's much of a quinky dink that it's always one nurse or one staff member always with them when they're dying. Nobody else. Yeah. Yeah, that's just a coincidence. Likely. Yeah, if I worked in a hospital and a bunch of people were dying around me, I'd be like, you know what? Maybe this isn't the profession for me. <laughs> I don't want anybody to be like, are you killing them? It's a little coincidental. You're always here. Right. It's a little sus. A little bit sus. A little sus, as my son would say. In April 1987, after getting a search warrant for Harvey's apartment, Investigators found his stash of cyanide and arsenic, books on poisons, and a detailed account of the murder he had written in a diary. With that evidence, Harvey was arrested for aggravated murder. He, of course, pled. Not guilty by reason of insanity. Exactly. Oh, I guess. (laughs) What do I win? (laughs) Oh, it's it's always it's the favorite. It's the fan <sighs> favorite. It's all the time. Always. <laughs> yep. So then um, investigators also began looking into other mysterious deaths at the hospital. On August 11th, 1987, Harvey, then 35 years old, confessed to 33 murders over the previous 17 years. The number he confessed to grew up to 70 in all. Investigators were skeptical and sent him for psychiatric tests. On August 18, 1987, Harvey pled guilty to 24 counts of aggravated murder, four counts of attempted murder, and one count of assault. 
four days later and one additional guilty plea, bringing the murder count to 25. Harvey was sentenced to four life sentences. Harvey was also indicted in Kentucky on September 7th, 1987, where he confessed to committing 12 murders while working at Marymount Hospital. In November, he pled guilty and was sentenced to eight life terms plus 20 years. In February 1988, he entered three additional guilty pleas on Cincinnati homicides and three attempted murders, giving him three more life sentences plus three terms of 70 to 25 years, 15 life sentences in total, according to the documentary I watched. Two years later, the investigation closed on the other murders due to lack of evidence. In a couple of places, I saw that Harvey pled guilty to all of the murder charges to avoid execution. Of course. So the guy that it was confirmed killed, oh, uh, what did I say? It was a lot. 70? <laughs> 47. So this guy who was like, yeah, I killed all these people, but like, don't kill me though, because I want to live. <laughs> like, dude. <laughs> Really? Right. But on March 28th, 2017, authorities reported that Harvey had been found in his cell in the Toledo Correctional Institution, severely beaten, and he died two days later on March 30th, 2017 at 64 years old. On May 3rd, 2019, fellow inmate James Elliott was charged with aggravated murder and other charges related to the death of Donald Harvey. In September 2019, he was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison after pleading guilty to killing Harvey. And the interview with him is kind of odd because, I mean, the, the guy wasn't in there for no reason. And he basically did it to be like, I did everyone a favor. It was re- yeah. it was real weird, and the judge was like, "Yeah, that's not your, it's not your responsibility." <laughs> and of course, the person, right. of course, the prisoner's like, "Yeah, whatever, I did it. I'm here for life." Oh my gosh! But on Wikipedia, there's a list of the 47 known victims of Donald Harvey. The first was Logan Evans in Kentucky in 1970, and the final known victim was John Powell in Ohio in 1987 giving Harvey 17 years to take lives as he saw fit. Harvey may have considered himself an angel of death, but to his victims and their families, Harvey was just a murderer who would have continued to kill if given the opportunity. Oh, absolutely. And that's the story. Donald Harvey and sources for that were Wikipedia, Murderpedia, and there is a YouTube video by serial killer documentaries about Donald Harvey. Wow. That one was intense. Yeah. I will say the one that I have is a lot. I am cutting out quite a bit because if I were to leave everything in, it would take probably two episodes just off of this one. Wow. So... <laughs> I will. It'll probably be all over the place. I'll skip around. I'm omitting a lot um, just to get through this. But yes, this one is is quite a bit. And as you were talking about yours, I noticed similarities between ours. Hmm. Their first jobs, their sexual orientation, 
certain things that were kind of like, that's a bit similar. <laughs> but this is going to be on Larry Eiler, the interstate killer or the highway killer. He was known as both. Larry Eiler was born the youngest of four children on December 21st, 1952 in Crawfordsville, Indiana, to George Howard Eiler and Shirley Phyllis Kennedy. His father was a raging alcoholic who enjoyed physically and emotionally abusing his wife and children in his spare time, which tends to be common in these. Larry's parents' divorce in uh, 1955 and him and his sister often spent their time with baby babysitters, placed with foster families, or just plain old left in the care of their two older siblings, the oldest being only 10 years old. Oh my gosh. As their mom found it impossible to provide f- for four children while working two jobs, one as a waitress and the other in a factory during the week, and then occasionally in a bar on the weekends. When Larry and his sister were in foster homes, their mom would often visit the youngest two, and he would go on to say that these separations and reunions only brought them all closer as a family. Oh, yeah, sure. Right. What do they say? Absence makes the heart grow fonder? Yeah. It probably depends on the reason for the absence. (laughs) Exactly. But it definitely didn't in this case. Kind of gave him a complex a little bit. Yeah. Larry's mom remarried in 1957, and the marriage only lasted about a year before they divorced. The third time she remarried was in 1960, this marriage lasting a total of four years, and the fourth time she remarried was in 1972. Dang, girl. Right. She was... really wanted to be married. Oh. Larry's dad and the first two stepdads were heavy drinkers. And the four siblings dealt with regular abuse, one of the stepfathers going so far as to frequently holding Larry's head under scalding hot water as a form of, quote unquote, discipline. Oh my gosh. Which, I mean, what he does is quite crazy, so it doesn't excuse it, but you can kind of see... Where he got it from. Yeah, where the crazy came from. Yeah. Oh. Definitely doesn't excuse it. I know the man was awful, but I feel bad for the boy. Yes. That's that's exactly it. Like, you can feel bad for the boy without, like, with also thinking the man needs to be dealt with. Absolutely. Larry attended St. Joseph's School in Lebanon, Indiana. Even though he was very tall for his age and in sports, He found himself being targeted by bullies due to his family being poor and his parents being divorced, which often led to his sister, Teresa, confronting his aggressors because children are assholes. Yeah. I mean, just like there's nothing, nothing to add to that. Like kids are dicks. Yeah. They certainly can't be. That's for sure. His teachers thought of him as quiet yet likable with very few friends. As he aged, he became more stubborn and erratic, which in 1963 caused his mother to place him in a home for unruly boys. I don't know. It's probably more like a, it was probably like a prison or a hospital. When you you think about it, like for the time. Yeah, it sounds like juvie or something. Yeah. He was emotionally devastated from this 
and within weeks, he tearfully persuaded his mom to allow him to come back home. But shortly after this, Eiler underwent psychological tests, which showed him to be of average intelligence, but also suffering from severe insecurity and holding an extreme fear of separation and abandonment. Shocker. Yeah, that seems um, fitting for all the duh, crap he had yeah. to go through. Figuring that these fears and these problems came from his life at home, staff recommended that he be temporarily put into a Catholic boys' home in Fort Wayne, where he uh, remained there for six months before returning back home to his mother. Larry realized that he was homosexual when he hit puberty and was open about his sexuality only to his family, although he struggled with deep-seated feelings of self-hatred because of his sexual orienta orientation. While in school, he occasionally dated girls, though none of the relationships got physical, which, I mean, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, due to being sort of religious since childhood, Larry had confided to some close friends that he struggled to accept his sexuality. Partially due to his apathetic attitude towards school, Eiler did not graduate from high school, though he did later receive a GED. Only a short time after leaving college, Larry got a job as a private security guard in the Marion County General Hospital. Huh. He worked there for six months before losing his job. It never... I never stated the reason. And then he found another job at a shoe store. This is when he began learning about Indianapolis's gay community, going to bars and regularly having casual sex with men. Many of these men noticed that Larry wouldn't look at his partner during sex and would shout words like bitch and whore, causing many to think that he was fantasizing that his partner was a woman. By the mid-70s, Eiler was well-known within the Indianapolis's gay community, especially among those who had a leather fetish. Oh, okay. <laughs> Fancy. <laughs> Do you? Do you, as long as you're not harming someone. But, you know, many people who knew him in the community said that he was a good-looking, laid-back guy and avid bodybuilder who was close to his mother and sister. Though others who had had sex with him described him as someone with a sadistic streak and violent temper, which would only surface during sex, often including Larry extensively bludgeoning, then causing light knife wounds on unwilling partners, predominantly to their torso area. Oh, my gosh. Yikes on bikes. The yeah. fact that that wouldn't have been like stopped then and there, but we are... Talking about mid-70s, where even though homosexuality is still having issues today, back then it was to an extreme to where, well, I can't say that it's not even an extreme now, but I would say to where, like, police really didn't seem to care when things happened to anybody within the gay community. Like, they really just kind of just, like, yeah, and men way. tend to underreport assaults yes. and stuff anyway. So that mm -hmm. I imagine that might have also had a had something to do with it. Oh, absolutely. He primarily worked as a house painter, and though he never served in the military, 
He enjoyed wearing Marine Corps t-shirts. Thought that was a random fact that they threw in there. All right. Thanks, Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, he lived in a condominium in Terre Haute with 38-year-old library science professor Robert Davis Little, who he first met in 74 while studying at Indiana State University. This was a platonic relationship between the two of them, with Larry seeing Little as sort of a father figure. Hmm. But this is definitely not the last we see of Robert Little. Larry and Robert regularly socialized within the gay community. Though Robert, a socially awkward, taciturn, and unattractive man, typically struggled to form friendships or gain sexual partners during these outings, causing Larry to consistently bring young men home to their home to engage in sex with the two of them. Alrighty then. A father figure that you also <laughs> tag team people with. Right, right. Uh... Completely platonic. But you pull a train. Got it. Yeah, those two things don't go together. No, it doesn't. It definitely doesn't. On August 3rd of 1978, Eiler picked up 19-year-old hitchhiker Craig Long on 7th Street in Terre Haute. Shortly after Long got into the truck, Larry propositioned him, resulting in Long attempting to get out of the truck. In response to this, Eiler pressed a knife against the young guy's chest as Long stated, I don't have any money. So the poor guy was obviously terrified. Eiler then drove toward a rural field, stating, it's not your money I want. I'm not after your money. He then ordered Long to get naked before he handcuffed him, bound his ankles, and ordered him to climb into the back of the pickup truck. When Long attempted to get away from him as Eiler undressed, Eiler chased after him and shouted, you queer, which, sir, <laughs> sir. It's, yeah. Um, I mean. Like, yeah, I'm running for my mm. life from you and you're going to throw a queer well, insult. I, well, I mean, no, Long, Long shouted it. But like, that's what I'm thinking. Like, Eiler chased after him. I probably worded that wrong. But Eiler chased after him as Long shouted, you queer. Oh. But my thought is, is there's a guy chasing after you. With a knife. I don't think now is the time to do that. Like, probably... I, sir... Okay. So, it's a res- weird, it was a weird choice. That's just... <laughs> weird, yeah, definitely a weird choice. It definitely doesn't excuse what happened to him, but I'm just saying weird choice. Weird choice. Yeah. In response, Eiler stabbed him once in the chest, which penetrated his lung. Uh, Long fell to the ground in basically feigning death, like pretended, pretended to die. But he later stumbled to a nearby house where the occupants called the paramedics. Wow. Shortly after, Larry drove to the house as Long received first aid and offered the handcuff key to a sheriff's deputy, claiming he had stabbed the young man accidentally. Uh... He fell on my knife. Why did you go back? If you see them there, why would you go to the house? I wonder if he was just like, maybe if I tell them it was an accident, everything will be fine. Everything will be fine. Right. It's going to wear thought. thought <laughs> yeah, I don't know if he really wanted to be caught. I don't know what. 
exactly. Like the whole situation is odd. He was arrested, obviously, and taken into custody. A search of his truck recovered um, is where they recovered a hunting knife, a metal-tipped whip. Ouch. Oh. A, yeah. Ugh. That made me clutch myself. Yeah. Ouch. Ow. A butcher knife, a another set of handcuffs, tear gas, and a sword. That is a weird collection. Yeah. It makes you, like question reality (laughs) this entire case is just like what what is going on what is going on larry was later charged with aggravated battery to which he agreed to plead guilty a judge set his bond at ten thousand dollars a sum which was raised by his friends how nice oh what hey friend i (laughs) i tried to kill a man hey friends in the gay community right I tried to kill a man. But I'm good looking and charismatic, so give, oh, <laughs> bail me right. out, please. Right? And pay attention to me, please. <laughs> he was released on bail on August 23rd. On this date, his lawyers offered Long a check from Little for $2,500 in return for his agreeing not to press charges. Oh. Long accepted the offer. <gasps> no. Yeah. And Eiler changed his plea to not guilty. As such, he was acquitted on November 13, being fined only $43 in court costs. Oh my gosh. You know, it makes you mad. Yeah. I tried to kill you. Take this payoff of $2,000. Right. $2,500. Okay. Which I mean, yeah, I guess probably in the 70s, that's like... A, a healthy amount, but like but it, you were almost killed, uh, yeah, and assaulted. Like, sir, what? I mean, that was his choice and everything, but yeah, holy shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In August of '81, Eiler ended up forming a long-term relationship with a 20-year-old married man named. Okay, <laughs> excuse this, mm. John. Dobravolaskis. Dobravolaskis. Okay. Mm-hmm. So John, <laughs> I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna call him by his last no. name. John, John lived with his wife, two children, and three foster children on North Greenview Avenue in Chicago, Illinois. His wife Sally was sort of tolerant of her husband's sexual orientation and the fact that her husband. And his lover often, uh, or that her husband's lover often stayed with them on weekends, paying a third of the rent. Oh, already then? So I guess it was one of those relationships where it's like, that's fine. We'll keep up, keep up appearances because I'm not going to go through a divorce. I'm not going to raise all these children alone. We'll stay together, but um, your lover can pay rent and come stay with us on weekends. Hey, not my relationship, not my circus, not my monkeys. <laughs> so, sure. Both Larry and John held a penchant for sadomasochism. And Ew. their sex frequently involved Larry binding John to devices before proceeding to beat and lash him as he hurled curses at him before they... um. 
get down to continued business. Correct. Although neither one of them was inclined towards monogamy, which obviously. Yeah. Shock. The couple considered the relationship a permanent one. Nonetheless, Larry constantly saw assurance he was the only man in his lover's life. And the two are known to have frequently argued over Larry's accusations of his lover's infidelity, cheating. He just always assumed that John was cheating on him, which, sir. I mean, he was married. I mean, the way they always say is how you find them is how you'll lose them. So I get if you can cheat on her, you're going to cheat on me. But like, sir, calm down. You're the other person in this. Like, chill. Ay, ay, ay. These arguments would occasionally lead to John striking Larry, who never retaliated in these um, fights. Occasionally, the arguments were initiated by perceptions and recriminations of Robert Little, who made no secret of his extreme hate or dislike. I call it hate. Of John to Larry and resented the fact that he was in a long-term relationship. So, Hmm. what I'm gathering here is that this platonic relationship where they would pull trains was maybe only thought of as platonic on the side of the guy who thought Little was like a dad. I think Little was probably in love a little bit with Larry. Just just my thoughts, at least. Although Larry primarily and, uh, and intermittently worked as a house painter in Illinois on the weekdays, he was also a liquor store clerk in Greencastle, Indiana on Saturdays. And because of this, he would regularly travel between the two states, living rent-free in um, Littles' Terre Haute residence at weekends. So it's like, on weekends, he would live rent-free there, but he would pay rent. He, it was, How do you keep up with that? Yeah, that'd be hard to track. It would be so confusing to me. Like, who do I owe? Like, I like to keep yeah. a list of bills that I owe and pay things, you know, on time and such. And I would be, like, going nuts. I could never. Between 1982 and 1984, Eiler is known to have committed a minimum of 21 murders and one attempted murder. Wow. All of his murders involved restraining his victim, and several victims were subjected to varying degrees of sadomasochism before being stabbed or sliced to death, with the majority of the wounds being inflicted to the chest and abdomen. His victims were typically plied with alcohol and sedatives, such as, words are difficult, ethchlorovinyl. Ethchlorovinyl, sure. Sorry if I'm saying this wrong. Before their restraint and murder, several victims were disemboweled after death. Oh. And Larry is known to have dismembered the bodies of four of his victims. Like, it's, he was all over the place with this. It's like he was trying so hard to find his way and just did it every way possible. Just tested a whole bunch, yeah. yeah. 
The victims were typically thrown in fields close to major interstate highways with their trousers and underwear commonly being discovered around their knees or ankles and their shirts and wallets were missing from the crime scene. On October 12th of 1982, Eiler lured a 21-year-old named Craig Townsend into his vehicle in Crown Point, Indiana. Although drugged, extensively beaten, and later abandoned naked and comatose in a rural field, causing Townsend to also suffer from exposure, he miraculously survived the assault. Wow. That's a that's right crazy fighter. That. Eleven days later, on October twenty third, Larry abducted and murdered a nineteen year old named Stephen Crockett, whose body was discovered in a cornfield in Kankakee County. I can only pronounce it how I think we in Michigan would pronounce it. And we would probably pronounce it Kankakee. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sorry to that county if that's wrong. <laughs> Words are difficult. <laughs> Approximately 12 hours after his murder, an autopsy revealed that he had been beaten, then stabbed to death, suffering 32 knife wounds, including four to his head. Overkill. Oh my gosh. One week later, on October 30th, a 26-year-old man named Edgar Underkofler disappeared from Rantoul, Illinois. His body had not been discovered until March 4th of 1983 in a field close to Danville, Illinois. Sometime the following month, Eiler murdered a 25-year-old barman named John Johnson, whose body was discovered one month later in Lowell, Indiana. And on November 20th, Eiler abducted a 19-year-old hitchhiker named William Lewis at a location close to Vincennes, Indiana. He was stabbed to death and buried in a field close to Rinseller, Indiana. Rinse. Yeah, that's what my guess is. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I these these are difficult. On December nineteenth, a twenty-three-year-old named Stephen Agan was abducted in Terre Haute. His body was discovered in Woodland, close to Indiana State Road 63, on December 28th. An examination of the outbuilding of an abandoned farm close to the crime scene showed several traces of human flesh on the walls in areas where plaster had been damaged, causing investigators to just assume again had been suspended against the walls of this property as his murderer had inflicted the injuries onto his body. Gross. <sighs> right. It's awful. Taking note the, of the extensive mutilation upon Agan's abdomen, chest, and throat, the coroner who performed this autopsy, Dr. John Pless, referenced the tremendous rage Agan's killer had, had shown upon his victim in, this, in his autopsy report adding a likelihood of there being more than one perpetrator in this murder. Right. Mm. Which, I can see that. Immediately after concluding Agan's autopsy, Pless conducted the autopsy upon the body of a 21-year-old named John Roach, whose body had been found close to Interstate 70 in Putnam County that day. Pless noted striking similarities in the injuries inflicted upon Roach and Agan, again making note of multiple stab wounds to the victim's abdomen, upper chest, and throat, suggesting 
and extreme rage exhibited by the perpetrator. On December 30th, a 22-year-old Yale University graduate named David Block disappeared from the Illinois suburb of Highland Park, having told his family of his intentions to visit a friend in the nearby city of Highwood. His body was then discovered by a farmer in a field of South Illinois Route 173 on May 7, 1984. Going back some, on January 24 of 1983, Eiler abducted and murdered a 16-year-old named Irvin Gibson in Lake County, Illinois. His body was not discovered until April 15th, just thrown atop the body of a dog, which had also been stabbed to death, which... That's 16. That's just a baby. And why are you killing him and a dog? Like, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. But it just, he, it it's like he, he just wanted to kill them young, and I don't, I don't quite understand. Between March and April of 1983, Larry is believed to have killed a minimum of five further victims between the ages of 17 and 29. On May 9, the body of a 21-year-old named Daniel Scott McNeve was discovered in a field close to Indiana State Road 39 in Hendricks County. The wounds to McNeve immediately tied his murder to the other victims, which were, you know, obviously linked to the same perpetrator. He had suffered 11 knife wounds to his neck, 5 to his back, and 11 to his abdomen, with one wound causing sections of his small intestine to poke through his abdomen. Wow. Yeah. Further, welt marks were discovered on McNeve's wrists and ankles, and his jeans had been pulled down to his ankles. As with, you know, the other victims, McNeve's body bore no signs of being subjected to rape, which you would think, but I guess not. Hmm. Because it seems to be like with a pseudo like masochism and stuff, you would think that that would include. But no, nine days later, Larry murdered a 25 year old named Richard Bruce in Effingham, Illinois. His body was thrown from a bridge into a creek and remained undiscovered until December 5th. Many advocates within Indiana's gay community had speculated the sudden increase in the number of disappearances and murders of young guys might be the work of a single perpetrator by 1983, though police had routinely raided gay bars and bookstores in addition to continually uh, filming patrons of these premises like in their efforts to identify the movements of suspects. That month, the gay newspaper The Works, in their own efforts to assist police, created an anonymous telephone hotline and published an article speculating as to both the identity and motive of the perpetrator, whom they speculated struggled to accept his sexuality. Ouch. Which, I mean, they were right. Yeah. With assistance from members of the gay community and the family of one of the murder victims, the editors of the newspaper offered a reward of $1,500 for any information leading to the arrest and conviction of the killer. Which you would think with everybody knowing, struggling with sexuality, knowing, you know, how he reacts when having intercourse, 
you would think they would say something. Or somebody would think, oh, hey, this sounds like something that Larry would do. You probably also don't want to think anybody that you know could turn out to be a murderer. Especially somebody you have slept with before. Even seeing those responses, you'd probably be like, well, I don't know if I could see it going to murder, but yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. By the early spring of 83... Police in Indiana had tentatively linked several murders of young males committed in the state to the same perpetrator. Six days after the discovery of McNeve's body, the Indiana State Police held a meeting attended by 35 detectives from each of the four jurisdictions where bodies of young males showing wounds suggesting the same murderer had been discovered. The conclusion of this meeting was that the same individual had murdered in each jurisdiction, and that all involved in the investigation should form a unified task force dedicated to the apprehension of the suspect. The four separate murder investigations within Indiana were kind of just like turned into one, if that makes sense. Like they brought all the investigations and just kind of like crammed them together and just said, let's have at it. Which I'm surprised that you could do that because. I mean, nowadays, that's, like, too much paperwork. Like, you can't, everything's got to stay separate. So I'm kind of surprised. With investigators agreeing that this task force would comprise of two detectives from the state police, two from Indianapolis police, and two from each county involved in the manhunt. This task force, named Central Indiana Multi-Agency Investigation Team, was commanded by Lieutenant Jerry Campbell of the Indianapolis Police. All information obtained was entered into a computerized database linked to the statewide police system. Which, I mean, that's pretty good for the 80s. Like, I'll give them that. I'll give them that. On the first day of, I'm just going to call them (laughs) C-I-M-A-I-T, the Central Indiana Multi-Agency Investigation Teams. <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm just gonna call them C I M A I T. That makes sense, so I don't have to keep saying it. <laughs> On the first day of their existence, the task force contacted the FBI's National Crime Inf- Information Center, um, describing the method of murder and body disposal of the offender they were seeking and requesting police forces who had d- uh, discovered other young male vert- murder victims whose wounds matched this pattern to contact them. Shortly after, investigators in Kentucky contacted the task force reporting that a 29-year-old Lexington resident named Jay Reynolds had been discovered stabbed to death in Madison County on March 22nd, and that his body had likely been transported to the site of its discovery. Days later, investigators in Chicago reported that the body of an 18-year-old African-American teenager named Jimmy Roberts, had been found with 35 stab wounds to his body in Thorn Creek on May 9. Both victims were linked to the manhunt for the same murderer, whom this task force termed the Highway Murderer. That's where the name came from. On June 6, a former lover of Larry's named Thomas Henderson called the investigation team's confidential hotline to voice his concerns and suspicions that Larry might be the killer they were seeking. Bravo, dude. Yay, Bravo Tommy. for figuring that out. 
<laughs> he explained yeah. that his former lover had been charged with, quote unquote, some sort of stabbing of a young hitchhiker in 78, possessed a violent temper, and had a penchant for bondage. Henderson added that Eiler worked in a liquor store in Greencastle on Saturdays and lived in Terre Haute with an older male at weekends. He also informed investigators that in May of 1982, Larry had drugged a 14-year-old boy. No. Later abandoning the unconscious young man in Woodland close to Greencastle. It just, sorry, it makes me a little ill. The boy had luckily not been molested, and investigators theorized the reason Larry had given the boy sedatives was as means to test the effectiveness of the drug. So I guess to just, like, test it before huh. he actually tried to kill someone? I don't know. So he tested on a child? <laughs> right. Conducting a background check on Eiler, investigators discovered he had been arrested in 78 for attempting to sexually assault a teenage hitchhiker whom he had stabbed and left for dead. The handcuffing of the young guy's wrists and binding of his ankles matched the modus operandi of the highway murderer, whose victims had also been discovered with welt marks on their wrists and ankles. Further, Eiler was known to regularly travel between Indianapolis and Chicago. This information was considered sufficient to keep an informal track of Eiler's whereabouts, but not yet place him under full surveillance, which kind of sucked. Yeah. On July 2nd, the partially clad body of an unidentified Hispanic man was found in a field two miles from the city of Paxton in Ford County, Illinois. The victim had been dead since June 27 or 28 and had been repeatedly stabbed in the abdomen. Eight weeks later, on August 31st, a tree trimming crew found the body of another victim, a 28-year-old named Ralph Khaleesi, in a field close to a tollway near Illinois Route 60. Lake County investigators quickly linked this murder to the stabbing deaths of, the, of two other young men whose bodies had been found close to this area earlier in 1983, Irvin Gibson and Gustavo Herrera. The victim, obviously, as I had said, 28-year-old Ralph Khaleesi, had been stabbed 17 times with a butcher or hunting knife, with several wounds inflicted to his abdomen, again causing sections of his small intestine to protrude through his body. In early September, a Chicago-based reporter for WLS-TV named Garland Kolarik noted similarities between the August 31st murder of Khaleesi and the two earlier deaths of, of young men within Lake County. Kalerik was familiar with the other murders committed in Indiana bearing similar signature knife mutilations and speculated that the murder of these earlier Indiana murders had begun to murder and or dispose of his victims' bodies in Lake County. Which, I mean, yeah. It's kind of like obvious it at this point. You know what I mean? Like, they're just kind of like running around with it. Conversing with Cook County investigators, Kalerik discovered that a further two young male murder victims who had lived in or disappeared from uptown in 1982 had also been discovered with multiple stab wounds to their bodies and their pants and underwear pulled down to their ankles in Kakaki, again, County, Illinois, and Lowell, Indiana. 
they just keep finding more and more victims. On September 8th, investigators from all jurisdictions in both states where these additional bodies had been discovered convened with the senior task force representatives in Crown Point to discuss whether the additional five deaths were also linked to the same perpetrator. All five murders were added to the list of victims compiled by the task force, whom investigators now believed, obviously, to have been murdered, up to 17 young males now, is what they've, they've so far got. One month later, on October 4th, two, two mushroom hunters, <laughs> sorry, I gotta giggle at that, two mushroom hunters. <laughs> okay. I wonder what kind of gun right. they use for those. <laughs> Two mushroom hunters found a human torso concealed inside a plastic bag in Kenosha County, Wisconsin. The victim was identified as 18-year-old Eric Hansen, who had last been seen alive on September 27th in St. Francis. Hansen's head, arms, and legs had been cut from his torso with a hacksaw, and the torso itself had been completely drained of blood. Oh. And unfortunately, his skull and hands were never found. Oh my gosh. Makes you a little ill. Yeah. On October 18th, the partially decomposed bodies of four further victims were discovered alongside an oak tree close to an abandoned farmhouse in Lake Village, Indiana. Each victim had been dead for several months, and all four decedents had been partially buried like with sections of the body of each victim remaining exposed above ground, suggesting that the perpetrator had made only rudimentary efforts to bury each victim. Just like you would think like he would try harder, but at this point he just seemingly didn't give a shit. Yeah, they hadn't caught him by then. Right. Didn't really care. Three of these victims, all Caucasian, were buried at one side of the tree, three feet apart, with their heads facing north. A fourth victim, an unidentified African-American, estimated to be aged between 15 and 18, was buried at the other side of the tree. All four victims had been stabbed more than two dozen times each, with a knife or blade at least eight inches in length, and the pants of each victim were discovered again around their ankles. Two months later, on December 7th, a hunter discovered a partially buried skeleton of yet again another victim in Hendricks County, close to U.S. Route 40. The victim was identified as 17-year-old Richard Wayne, who had disappeared on March 20 while traveling from California to his home in Montpelier, Indiana. The body of a second less decomposed victim was found beneath the remnants of a burned mobile home a few feet from where Wayne had been buried. The decedent was determined to be an African-American, approximately five foot nine in height, although his remains were unfortunately never identified. Wow. It's so much. And at this point, you'd think that they would have reason to just put him on full alert, but... But finally, they did something, and on September 30th, Eiler was arrested in Lowell, Indiana, for a routine traffic violation. He had been in the company of a young hitchhiker at the time of his arrest, and both men... Oh my gosh. Yeah, and both men were arrested and detained for questioning at a Lowell State Police post... Like, 
like an office, initially being detained upon charges of soliciting a young male for sexual purposes after a sergeant named William Cothran without Eiler's consent and before informing him that he was under arrest, had searched his Ford truck at the roadside and discovered two sections of nylon rope. His vehicle was impounded. But yes. Oh, no. He had done that a little wrong. So you can guess uh, where this is likely headed. Yeah. Shortly after 1.30 p.m., two investigators from Central Indiana, okay, C-I-M-A-I-T, conducted a formal interview with Larry, whom they informed had become a suspect in the series of murders due to an anonymous phone call received from a former acquaintance of his. Although he was willing to talk about any other aspect of his life and their suspicions of him having committed murder, he refused to discuss his sexuality. So it's like, okay, we'll talk about whether or not I killed somebody, and we'll talk about my my life growing up, but don't you dare mention that I'm gay. It's like, sir, get a grip. Questions about the murders of John Roach and Daniel McNeve. Eiler claimed to have read press coverage of both murders in the Indianapolis Star, but he denied ever having committed murder. He consented to the investigator's request to conduct a forensic examination of his vehicle and also agreed to allow investigators to take his mugshot, copies of his fingerprints, and to subject him to a polygraph test at a later date. A search of Eiler's vehicle recovered a knife, two sections of nylon rope, handcuffs, a hammer, two baseball bats, a mallet, and surgical tape. An inspection of Eiler's footwear and vehicle revealed the impressions of his boots to be a precise match to plaster casts taken of imprints discovered along the body, uh, alongside the body of Ralph Khaleesi. The pattern of his vehicle's tracks were also deemed similar. Moreover, blood was found beneath the handle of the knife found inside his vehicle and he was known to have regularly commuted between the three districts in Indiana and Illinois, where several victims' bodies had been found, Greencastle, Terre Haute, and Chicago. In addition, Larry's lifestyle closely matched the predicted-upon psychological profile of the murderer earlier compiled by the FBI. But, like, again, things had happened. I mean... Yeah. <sighs> They had done so many things, so, so many things. And upon completion of the forensic examination of the pickup, Indiana investigators let Eiler know he was free to leave custody and retain possession of his vehicle. Due to concerns regarding Eiler's knowledge that he was now a murder suspect might lead to his disposing of any potential evidence, in the early hours of October 1st, investigators from the CIMAIT obtained a search warrant authorizing their search of the Terre Haute home of Robert Little. The search was conducted at dawn on October 2nd and revealed further circumstantial evidence, such as credit card receipts indicating Eiler's presence in jurisdictions within both Illinois and Indiana on dates identified. Victims linked to the highway murderer had been killed. An examination of phone bills retrieved from the property revealed Eiler had regularly placed collect calls to Little's homes at odd hours. Shortly after, identified victims were believed to have been murdered. One of these calls to Little's home had been placed from a payphone near the Cook County Hospital on April 8, the murder date of victim Gustavo Herrera. Hospital records revealed Larry had received treatment for a deep cut to his hand on that date, 
which he claimed had been caused in a fall from his truck where he had landed on a glass beer bottle. Mm -hmm. Receipts recovered from the property revealed he had purchased handcuffs and a knife the following day. Investigators further discovered Eiler and Little had recently spent several weeks on vacation in New York, returning to Indiana shortly before Khaleesi's murder. This led a member of the Indiana task force named Kathy Burner to remark to her colleagues that if Larry were not the murderer they were seeking, he was following the actual killer on a daily basis. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Good one. Right. As the tire impressions obtained by Indiana authorities were not suitable for comparison with the impressions obtained at the site of Khaleesi's murder, Illinois investigators received approval from a state attorney to take possession of Larry's truck. The vehicle was impounded at the Lake County Sheriff's headquarters on the evening of October 2nd, and Larry accompanied investigators to Waukegan to submit to further questioning by an investigator named Dan Collin. On this occasion, he admitted to Colin his penchant for being the dominant partner in bondage sessions, that his relationship with Dobra John <laughs> had been something of a love-hate relationship, and that he and John had frequently argued, and that his lover had occasionally hit him. He denied the tire tracks and boot impressions recovered at Cleesey's murder scene belonged to him, adding that he had never met met the man. Collins stated to Larry, Larry, we know something about you. You'd get into a fight with John and pick someone else and stab him because you think it's John. The accusation caused Larry to visibly wince. Not long after his release from custody on October 4th, Eiler requested legal representation from Chicago lawyer Kenneth Dukowski. After receiving confirmation from the Lake County Deputy Chief Investigator that police had insufficient evidence to formally charge his client with murder, Dukowski filed a civil suit against the Lake County Sheriff's Police and the Indiana State Police on October 11th, citing the harassment of his client and contending investigators in both states had violated the 14th Amendment and Larry Eiler's civil rights by involving him in their collective investigation with insufficient evidence to formally charge him with murder. The suit sought $250,000 in damages against 11 officers in both states. Hmm. On October 6th, the boot and tire imprints recovered at the scene of Ralph Khaleesi's murder were sent to the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. for further analysis in comparison with all physical evidence recovered by Indiana investigators in the task force's Ah, task forces efforts to forensically link Eiler to this particular murder. Sorry, tongue twister. (laughs) Several days later, the FBI reported to investigators that the boot impressions were a precise match, including four distinctive areas of wearing and damage to the soles. Extensive blood stains determined to be type A positive were also discovered inside his footwear. The tires on Larry's car were from two different manufacturers, and the impressions at the murder scene shows that they were a perfect match in terms of grip depth. Oh, wow. So they had them with the uh, shoes and the tires. and yeah. Right. It was like an open and shut case, except they had obtained all of this illegally. Oh, yeah. That would put a 
uh, dampener on that one. Yep. On October 27th, investigators from the Central Indiana Multi-Agency Investigation Team, CIMAIT, <laughs> and <laughs> Lake County held a meeting to determine whether sufficient evidence existed to charge Eiler with murder. The conclusion of this meeting convinced officers from the two jurisdictions that sufficient evidence existed to charge Eiler with the murder of Rolf Khaleesi. The next day, investigators obtained a warrant. This time was proper. Well, good job. But I digress. <laughs> um, allowing the retrieval of Eiler's hair and blood samples for further comparison with evidence earlier retrieved from Eiler's vehicle to be served the following day. The date of the hearing of, uh, which was the date of the hearing of Dykowski's civil suit. Dykowski's civil suit was heard at the Dirksen Federal Building on October 29th with Dykowski requesting permission to ex access the affidavit investigators had used to request a search warrant for his vehicle. Although Dykowski argued before Judge Paul Plunkett that not a scintilla of evidence existed against his client. What's a scintilla? <laughs> Just what he had said. And I guess that means like not a shred likely. Was like, did, did he make up that word? I don't. I've never heard they that had, before. They had quoted him on that. And when I look it up, it's like iota, bit, speck, shred. Huh. So like. Skintilla sounds dirty. I don't know that I'd use that in regular <laughs> language. <laughs> True. Um, Judge Plunkett, having reviewed the investigator's collective affidavit, ruled Dykowski could not obtain access to the documents at the present date. As Larry walked from this hearing, two Lake County investigators presented Dykowski with warrants authorizing the retrieval of Larry's blood and hair samples. A sample of Larry's blood revealed his blood type to be O positive. Eiler was formally charged with Khaleesi's murder on October 29th, with his bond being set at $1 million, and an initial trial date set for December 19th. He declared his innocence, adding in anonymous media interviews, that the accusation had harmed his reputation among his family and friends and stating that had he murdered any individual pulling a real OJ here, yeah. had he murdered any individual real evidence would have existed. So if I had done it <laughs> kind of, thing. if I had done it, I would totally be caught by now guys. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> right. On the 1st of November, Lake County investigators obtained a search warrant to conduct a second search of Robert Little's home. The primary objective of this search warrant was to determine whether the victim's missing t-shirts and wallets had been kept as keepsakes. Hell. Ew. Even though investigators retrieved 221 items of clothing, good God, uh, jewelry and pharmaceuticals and Polaroid photographs, so that was like everything all together. Yeah. None of the items recovered portrayed or belonged to any of the murder victims. Yeah. I can't judge him for the 200 and however many items because I don't know how many items I have in my closet. You know, true. <laughs> I hadn't even thought of it like that, but yeah, accurate. However, a key recovered in this search was a precise match to a key found beneath the body and body of Stephen again. 
This key was later determined to fit the door of an office where Larry had worked in 1982. Huh. So again. Yeah. If there was any evidence. <laughs> right. But, but had I done it, yeah, there'd be evidence. Just your office key. No big deal. <laughs> With the approval of his mother, as well as Little and Dabravolovsky's, a criminal defense attorney named David Shippers was appointed to replace Kenneth Dukowski as Larry's legal representative on November 12th. Shippers chose to reverse the defense strategy adopted by his predecessor, also forbidding his client to allow any further interviews to the media. Which... Smart. Genius. <laughs> right, you would think. Succeeding a lengthy evidentiary hearing in December of 1983, Lake County Circuit Judge William Block ruled that although Eiler's initial arrest for the traffic violation had been legally valid, his subsequent detainment during which ev evidence was recovered by Indiana police and now presented before him had been obtained without probable cause and that Eiler's detention had, in fact, been illegal. Oh, no. Mm. A further hearing to determine whether defense motions to suppress the physical and circumstantial evidence retrieved by investigators between September 30th and November 22nd and to quell, the reverse various, uh, quell and reverse various warrants authorizing these searches and, and the seizure of property was scheduled for January 23rd, 1984. It just gets yeah, angrier and angrier. Yeah. At the following January 1984 hearing to determine whether the evidence recovered following Eiler's arrest should be suppressed, a police sergeant named John Pavlakovic accepted the primary reason Lowell police had prolonged Eiler's detainment on, a, on September 30th was to await the arrival in Lowell of members of the task force assembled to investigate the series of murders and that Eiler had never formally been under arrest in relation to any offense other than soliciting a male for sexual purposes. Further testimony pertaining to the Lake County and Chicago officers' search of Dobrovolovsky's evidence on October 3rd revealed the search had been conducted without a search warrant. While Lake County investigator Dan Collin was conversing with Larry um, Eiler's attorney, David Shippers, following the ruling, um, he had said, the Indiana task force and we were able, working together, to trace Larry's movement for an entire year. There are 21 murders that we know of through receipts and bills and what have you. We were able to place him at nine of the scenes. Here is the date Steve Crockett disappeared. Here is where he was found. And here is where Larry bought gas nearby. Over here is a collect call from the gym where Larry and John Bartlett worked out. Here is when Bartlett disappeared. And here is a gas receipt from practically where Bartlett was found. Don't you see the pattern? He kills and he makes a call. It's his pattern. Now that you got him off, you better hope there aren't any more long distance calls to tear out. Whoa. Yeah, that was pretty. Woo. I'd be pissed. Like, <laughs> I get it. But like, hey. Yeah. Be mad at your say officers, dude. <laughs> spicy. <laughs> Extra spicy. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall that day. Oh, for sure. After four days of testimony, Judge Block adjourned the hearing until January the 27th to consider his ruling, informing the assistant state's attorney and David Shippers that sufficient 
precedents existed for both admitting and suppressing the evidence. On February 1st, though, Judge Block ruled that although Eiler had signed a Miranda waiver upon being detained, he had been taken into custody for interrogation upon charges unrelated to the crime of murder and was only later detained on charges of soliciting. Naming the exclusionary rule as the basis for his decision, Judge Block ruled that the physical evidence retrieved by Illinois investigators in their comparison of his boot prints and tire tracks to the plaster cast recovered at the Khaleesi crime scene had been tainted as the search had been provoked by Eiler's initial illegal detainment by Indiana investigators in violation of his constitutional rights. Damn. Moreover, although Illinois investigators had gained possession of Eiler's boots from the Indiana counterparts through a subpoena, the boots had never been formally seized by Indiana authorities. What? Dumbasses. What would they do with them then? Like, right. We took the treads. There's no boots that we have to match it, but we're we're just telling you. Basically, what it <laughs> seems like is they they had taken them, they had taken them in, they had compared all these things, but they never logged them in formally. Oh, uh, that's what it, at least what I got from it. I mean, I could be wrong. Uh, a lot of procedural errors, just ruining the case there. Absolutely. Judge Block further ruled the facts detailed in the police affidavit to search Robert Little's home were insufficient to obtain a search warrant, with the exception of the tire impressions and hair and blood samples obtained from Eiler. Block ordered all evidence obtained to be suppressed, and he also reduced Eiler's bond to to the sum of $10,000. So the judge, the judge knows this guy has been murdering people. Yeah, it's pretty obvious. And he still but because reduces, of the law. Yeah, he yeah. still decides to reduce the bond. Because of the law Yikes. and because they only had, like, a smaller amount of evidence against him than what they had before. Yeah, basically nothing. Back to square one. As a result of this ruling, Larry Eiler was released from custody on February 6th, 1984, after his family and Robert Little paid... The reduced bond fee. Hmm. Of course. Terms enforced upon Eiler's bond specified he was unable to leave Illinois. In attempts to appeal this ruling, prosecutors submitted several legal challenges, including an appeal against the suppression of this evidence to the Supreme Court of the United States. But of course, these appeals were unfortunately unsuccessful. Yeah. Four weeks, and this is where it starts to get you even matter. Four weeks after his release from custody... Larry permanently relocated to Chicago. He lived in an apartment complex in Rogers Park with Robert Little buying the furniture, paying the weekly rent, and paying for a new set of tires for Larry's pickup. Hmm. So just get rid of those tires that were evidence. Yep, so. They can't use cool. them anyway. No. At his lawyer's insistence, Larry refused to provide John Dubrovolovsky's with his new address although his lover soon discovered where he lived. Ooh. And at approximately 10.30 p.m. on August 19, 1984, Larry persuaded a 16-year-old named Daniel Bridges to his apartment. The youngest of 13 children, Daniel was a neglected child and habitual runaway who, although heterosexual, had been a male prostitute ever since he was 12 years old. Oh, my or- gosh. Poor guy. Poor child. He, exactly, child. 
Daniel had been a close friend of victim Irvin Gibson and is known to have been suspicious of Eiler, whom he had described to an NBC reporter that was commissioned to film a documentary focused on child exploitation in America two months before his murder as a quote-unquote real freak who was well-known to the uh, male prostitutes of Uptown. Huh. So he had literally... Spoke to a reporter. I don't trust him. He's a real freak. Inside Larry's apartment, Daniel was tied to a chair with clothesline before he was beaten, tortured, and stabbed to death. Oh my gosh. Larry then mutilated Daniel's body in his bathroom. His body was cut into eight pieces and each were completely drained of blood before being placed inside six individual plastic bags. Jesus. The dismembered body of Daniel Bridges was discovered by a janitor named Joseph Bala on the morning of August 21st, 1984. His remains had been placed inside of a garbage dumpster close to Larry's apartment and within a unit not meant for usage by tenants within his apartment complex. Believing the bags to have been illegally dumped, Bala chose to remove the bags from the dumpster to examine the contents. While removing the first bag, it split open and revealed a severed human leg. Uh, Imagine that. That would be the worst thing to find, I think. Like, he was probably, like, pulling it out to see if there was, like, any mail or something with an exact address so they could say, you dumped this in the wrong location, but instead, just limbs. body. Ugh. That's awful. But lucky, lucky... Reporting his findings to police, Bala said that other janitors had noticed a tenant named Larry Eiler placing the bags in the dumpster the previous afternoon. Oh, well, would you look at that? Dumb motherfucker. (laughs) Recognizing Eiler's name, a police captain named Francis Nolan informed the four other officers present, detain anyone occupying apartment 106. I don't care who it is. Within minutes, Eiler was arrested at his apartment. Dobrofilovsky's was also taken into custody, although he was soon released without charge. Hmm. A forensic examination of Eiler's apartment conducted on August 21st and 22nd uncovered abundant amounts of blood that had been cleaned from his bedroom, which had recently been repainted, and extensive traces of blood spattering were located across the floor, walls, and ceiling. Whoa. It was like bad. Yeah. Various traces of blood later determined to belong to Daniel Bridges were also found on a mattress, the seat of a chair, a leather belt, a sofa inside his room, and under the floorboards of the doorway to the bathroom. Whoa. Good God. Inside Eiler's closet, investigator fo- investigators found Daniel's jeans soaked with blood stains. Daniel's distinct Duke University t-shirt, also considerably stained with blood, was discovered in a hamper, along with a leather vest belonging to Larry that had recently been washed. Additionally, investigators discovered a a hacksaw within the building. Blades for this tool, plus an awl, were also recovered from a drawer within the utility room. Receipts recovered revealed Larry had recently purchased several hacksaw blades. Huh. Luckily, now on this side, evidence just kept mounting. 
Yeah, good. Because he slipped up, but it sucks because this child is deceased. Yeah. Because they fucked up the first time. Yep. He wouldn't have had the opportunity to do that if it hadn't have been messed up. Nope. If he had still been in prison, none of this would have happened. Yeah. The forensic examination of the bags used to conceal Daniel's remains showed several fingerprints determined to belong to Larry. These fingerprints were found on both in and out of the bags. On August 24th, investigators conducted a luminol test inside Eiler's now empty apartment. This test revealed extensive traces of blood in the bedroom. Additional markings across the floors indicated Daniel's body had been dragged from the bedroom into the bathtub where he had, you know, obviously been dismembered. Yeah. On August 22nd, Eiler was formally charged with Daniels' murder. He denied any knowledge of the crime, insisting that his fingerprints must have been inadvertently placed on the bags containing Daniels' body. As you know, he moved them aside as he placed different garbage bags into the dumpster. Because... <laughs> Never mind that the blood's in my apartment. This, <laughs> the this bags aren't not mine. funny, but the stupidity is funny. You oh know what I mean? Gosh. Like, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, this whole thing is just disgusting, but his stupidity is, like, mind-boggling to me. <laughs> yeah, you just find some dark humor in that one. <laughs> You're like, okay, dumbass. Sure. Like, why couldn't you have done this earlier and been caught a lot sooner? Because all of a sudden you moved to Chicago in an apartment and... Now you're dumb? Yeah. Why couldn't you... <laughs> exactly. The same day, Cook County Medical Examiner Dr. Robert Stein conducted the autopsy upon Daniels' body. This autopsy determined death had been caused due to multiple wounds via a knife and an awl-like instrument. No facial, facial fractures were evident, though Daniel had evidently been beaten around the right eye, also suffering several shallow cuts to his face before his death. Aww. Poor kid. 14 wounds, likely inf inflicted with an ice pick or an awl, were also evident upon, upon and around Daniel's sternum. These wounds had also been inflicted prior to death. Additionally, five knife wounds to the abdomen were noticeably deep and had caused sections of Daniel's intestine to stick out through the wounds. Oh. I, it's like, it just gets like worse and worse. Like, dude. Yeah. That poor, see that poor baby. Exactly. Three additional knife wounds to his back had been exacted with such force that his heart and left lung had been perforated. Oh, shit. In order to legally seek the death penalty, the prosecutors at Eiler's upcoming tri trial, Mark Ricosi and Rick Stock, opted to charge Eiler with the felonies of aggravated kidnapping, unlawful restraint, and concealment of Daniel's body, in addition to the charge of murder. So let's, like, do what we're supposed to do to make sure that he stays here, basically. Yeah. There was quite a bit written about the trial and witness testimony but I don't want to go too far into that part, as this would probably make this a three-hour podcast. Um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll just say the jury deliberated for three hours before returning to their verdict. Eiler was found guilty of the aggravated kidnapping, unlawful restraint, and murder of Daniel Bridges, in addition to the concealment of his body. His face displayed little emotion as the verdict was announced though his hands clenched the legs of the attorneys sitting either side of him. 
Like, don't touch me. (laughs) Right? Like, bro, get your hands off me, motherfucker. Yeah. (laughs) Upon hearing the council's closing arguments, Judge Urso announced that he would return with his decision at 10 a.m. on October 3rd. On this date, Judge Urso formally sentenced Eiler to death by legal injection, emphasizing his decision had been difficult for him to reach due to his religious beliefs. Urso but then explained, The senseless and barbaric murder of a 16-year-old boy, a killing which was so brutal it defies description, shows me your complete disregard for human life. If there ever was a person or a situation for which the death penalty is appropriate, it is you. You are an evil person. You truly deserve to die for your acts. I thereby sentence you to death for the murder of Danny Bridges, committed during the course of his aggravated kidnapping. Wow. Damn straight. Snaps all around for Judge Urso. Yeah. Shit. (laughs) He was big mad. (laughs) Fox. (laughs) Following his sentencing, Eiler was transferred to the Pontiac Correctional Center, where he remained incarcerated on death row. Within this facility, Larry underwent several psychiatric evaluations. These tests concluded Eiler suffered from a severe borderline personality disorder, noting Eiler's pathological sensitivity to feelings of abandonment. Experts theorized Eiler had killed in response to real or perceived feelings of rejection from his lover, discharging his rage upon his victims. Furthermore, these experts believed that he had also murdered in order to maintain a sense of control. I don't care. Yeah. I was going to say, who cares? Who cares why he did it? He did it. Flip the switch. uh, (laughs) Insert insert the drugs, whatever you got to (laughs) do. Right. Get out the, uh, what was was it? The shooting, um, what's it called? I think I'm. My brain's not working right now. I can't think of it. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. Bring bring him to the gallows. I'd love to see that. Ooh, guillotine. <laughs> guillotine. No, that's too fast. Gallows. Gallows. <laughs> hanging hanging for sure. <laughs> that might hurt him a little more. Ooh, drawing and quartering. <laughs> Bring that back for those cases. <laughs> right? Like, why does his death get to be humane while he tortured a kid? No shit. Like, yeah, let's bring back some medieval torture that would take a while. You know what? I'm all for it. I'm all for it. In May of 1988, Eiler filed a formal appeal against his conviction, contending that although he had dismembered Bridges' body and disposed of the remains, the actual murder itself had been committed by Robert Little in his absence, and this contention had not been rebutted by the prosecution at his trial. This appeal further contended Bridges had been driven to Eiler's apartment by Robert Little, whose vehicle had not been subjected to a forensic examination, and that his alibi had never been corroborated. So after everything that Little did for you, getting you out of jail the first time, paying for everything for you, doing everything for you, you're going to blame it on him? Though I was feeling like he has to be in on it. It does seem a bit suspicious. Because if... I think I've said this before. If my husband's accused of murder and there's even like a shred of evidence, which there was plenty legally obtained or not, 
You're like, you know what? <laughs> We're done here. I don't think I'm going to pay a $10,000 bond to get you the fuck out. No, you can stay <laughs> no. there. I'm um, uh, I'm going to change all my locks. And, uh, <laughs> I'm running far away yeah. until you're gone. Let me get a personal <laughs> protection order because I don't trust you. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I'm not a ride or die in that situation. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> The appeal was heard on May 10 of 1989 and later dismissed on October 25th. An initial execution date was set for March 14th of 1990. On November 5th, 1990, an attorney named Kathleen Zellner was appointed by the Illinois Appellate Defender's Office to represent Eiler in his ongoing appeals against his conviction. Which, hello, Kathleen Zellner. Yeah. Big name. And and she is a big part in the ending of this, too, which is like, never knew that. In November of 1990, a Vermilion County prosecutor named Larry Thomas obtained the physical evidence regained against Eiler in relation to the murder of Ralph Khaleesi, which was previously ordered to be suppressed by Judge William Block with the intention of presenting the evidence before an Indiana grand jury to determine whether sufficient evidence existed to charge Eiler with the December 1982 murder of Stephen Agan. Upon being informed of his impending indictment in Agan's murder, Eiler agreed to voluntarily confess to his culpability, although he insisted this particular murder had been committed with the help of Robert Little again. Ladies and gentlemen. He's back. He's back. He agreed to confess to his guilt and testify against his alleged accomplice, on the condition he be given a fixed term of imprisonment as opposed to a further death sentence. His offer was accepted, and Eiler provided his attorney with a 17-page confession on December 4th. 17 pages. Wow. You know that confession probably went into extreme detail. Yeah. Yikes on bikes. Uh, I would have hated reading that. Yeah, no thank you. On December 13th, Eiler pled guilty to the murder of Stephen Agan before Judge Don Darnell, additionally testifying Robert Little had been a knowing and willing participant in this murder. An independent polygraph test conducted prior to Little's trial indicated the authenticity of this assertion, and to Eiler's further claim that Little had been the individual who had actually murdered Daniel Bridges. Hmm. So now I'm wondering... He is psychopathic, and he does have, like, these supposed illnesses. Does he really believe it? Or is the fact that he has no, like, real emotions on anything what allows him to pass these polygraph tests? Yeah. Like, is it the truth? Or is it the fact that he's, like... If he believes it's the truth, it will show as true, so... Right. But But these polygraph tests also, like, what they really show is like your spike in like what is it your blood pressure or your heart rate and like your sweat glands but if he doesn't have any emotion or any fear or any like bullshit on it he could probably just like sit there and bullshit his way through it yeah if you have no reactions how do you read the truth in, in that yeah that's what fucks with me so it's like what's the truth and what's not you know Larry Eiler received a sentence of 60 years imprisonment on December 28th to be served concurrently with his existing sentence. Little, aged 53, was arrested on December 18th and formally charged with Agan's 
first-degree murder, facing a sentence of 60 years imprisonment if convicted. The following month, Kathleen Zellner offered a deal on behalf of her client where Eiler would confess to his culpability in 20 further homicides. Whoa. Yeah. Committed across 10 counties in Illinois and Indiana if the state of Illinois would commute his death sentence to one of life imprisonment without parole. Bitch, what? According to Zellner, her client had offered until the end of January for this deal to be accepted or he would, quote unquote, take his secrets to the grave. Though authorities in eight of these 10 jurisdictions readily agreed to offer Eiler a lengthy prison sentence in exchange for his confession, and a ninth jurisdiction indicated a potential willingness, but awaited the official response from Cook County, the Cook County State's attorney, Jack O'Malley, ultimately rejected Eiler's offer. Huh. But that whole, I'm going to take, take this to the grave, you're getting a death sentence. Yeah. Like... Okay, then. <laughs> Fry, motherfucker. Like, what? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> My God. Bring back dragon quartering. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Maybe that'll beat it out of him. Like, Robert Little. <laughs> like, tell you what. Uh, tell us, or we will dragon quarter you. If you do tell us, we can go nicely with, like, lethal injection or something. Yeah, you know? <laughs> It'll be quiet. Which Otherwise, one do you can make want? this loud. Like a really bad and painful and it'll take a little longer or, you know, something faster. <laughs> if only that was legal. Golly. <laughs> Robert Little was brought to trial on April 11th, 1991. He was tried in Vermilion County before Judge Don Darnell and entered a formal plea of not guilty on that date. Eiler testified against his alleged accomplice at this trial claiming he and Little had both committed the murder of Agon on December 19, 1982. According to Larry, the two had regularly socialized within Indianapolis's gay community, occasionally bringing young men to Little's home to engage in sex, with Little frequently photographing the sexual acts. Ew. Gross. Perv. <laughs> Testimony from Eiler asserted that on the date of the murder... Little had suggested the two do a scene, quote unquote, which he had understood to mean commit a murder for sexual pleasure as Little photographed the event with a Polaroid camera. Ew. Do a scene doesn't mean commit murder. So if that's what you took it as. Yeah. Excuse me? That sounds like a regular thing they had their own like language for. Code. Yeah. He and Little had lured again, whom Eiler had vaguely known through frequently the car wash where again had worked, into Little's vehicle in Terre Haute, initially with the promise of again simply drinking with the two. Although again was heterosexual, he agreed to participate in a bondage and photo photography section session for money. Ah, for money. Section is more proper. <laughs> The two men had initially driven again to a location close to the Terre Haute Regional Airport where a guardsman ordered the three off the airport grounds. Eiler then... Okay, wait. Before I get into the rest, I wanted to get into that. If that's true, the guardsman ordered the three away. Where is the guardsman? Yeah. Matt? Tell us, sir. Did you see these two together? 
Eiler then drove toward an abandoned shed close to Indiana State Road 63. At this location, Agan's hands were tied above a beam before he was gagged and bound. According to Eiler, Little then shouted, Get out the knife, before he had proceeded to stab Agan. Eiler fully testified Little had repeatedly masturbated, Ew. Ew. while photographing him as he had bound and repeatedly stabbed Agan, and that Little had also stabbed the young man before stating to Eiler, Okay, kill the motherfucker. Little had taken Agan's undershirt from the crime scene and had later complained to Eiler the overall murder ritual had been too fast for his liking. Huh. Gross. It was pretty in-depth if it was fake, though. Hmm. You know? Like, he does have a lot. I will say he does explain a lot. But but then I wonder, like, again, was it really little? Or was this something he, like, a conversation he kind of had with himself? Yeah. Like, saw in his own head. Right. You never know. In Little's trial, both prosecutor Mark Greenwell, um, ah, in Little's trial, prosecutor Mark Greenwell described the murder as being a performance orchestrated at Little's instruction, adding that the murder had been committed to satisfy the defendant's lust for sadomasochistic bondage. Greenwell also inferred Eiler had nothing to per- personally gain by asserting Little had actively pers- participated in this murder. Yet he did. Adding Eiler had readily admitted to physically taking the decedent's life. Yeah, but he wouldn't... He did have something to gain. His life. Yeah. Dennis Zahn, Little's attorney, described his client as an individual victimized because of his sexuality and portrayed Eiler as a convicted murderer. <laughs> like, I mean, obviously, he is. What do you mean, portraying him? Yeah. Bridgman <laughs> as a convicted murderer, cynically fabricating accusations against his client in a last-ditch effort to have his death sentence commuted. Which, I mean, yeah, but... Referencing the 24 occasions in which Eiler had exercised his Fifth Amendment rights in response to questioning by the defense, Zahn ended his closing argument by asking the jurors, would you convict an honorable man, an honorable man on the word of Larry Eiler? Which, right? Would you, you you trust him? But how honorable though is the question? Yeah, like I definitely question it. Uh. <laughs> right. There are concerns. <laughs> Many actually. Back up. What do you mean by honorable? <laughs> After deliberating for over seven hours, the jury found Little not guilty of all charges on April 17. Little grinned as the verdict was read before hugging his attorney as Stephen Agan's brother and parents ran out of the courtroom. Oh. I feel bad for Agan's family. Yeah. Following his acquittal, Little held a press conference in which he informed reporters, I'm just so happy this ordeal is over before stating his intentions to return to his teaching position at Indiana State University. On March 6, 1994, Larry Eiler died due to AIDS-related complications. When he had died, his attorney, Kathleen Zellner, had prepared further appeal disputing his conviction in the Daniel Bridges murder. Which, lady, he already admitted to that. Yeah. But okay. Which was pending the Illinois Supreme Court 
and Zellner was confident that the conviction would have been overturned. I wouldn't overturn anything that he already blatantly admitted to, but yeah. that. Plus, he was still in there for the other murder anyway, so why did it matter? Right. Like, you're already getting <laughs> life. <laughs> like, what you, right, what does it matter? Yeah. But then, of course, which is, this is, okay. This is what gets to me out of everything. Her really wanting this to be overturned because of what happens next. Two days after Eiler's death, Kathleen Zellner called a press conference in which she revealed the names and or descriptions of 17 individuals whom her client confessed to having personally murdered and naming four under other individuals, Stephen Crockett, Stephen Agan, an unidentified Caucasian murdered in late May of 93, and a further unidentified Caucasian male murdered in April of 94, whom Eiler claimed to have been murdered with the assistance of Robert Little, of course, because they're going to add that in, um, who Zellner referred to in this press conference as an unnamed individual still living in Indiana. Holy shit. Zellner emphasized her client's insistence Little had been the individual who actually murdered Daniel Bridges. So, like, he's still trying to claim that the one that he's getting the death penalty for, it, Little did that one. But all these other ones, he did. <laughs> wow. He's dead already. Yeah. What are you doing? Like, my gosh. According to Zellner, her client had been an emotionally insecure individual who had viewed Robert Little as something of the father figure he had never had in his life. And this had left Eiler vulnerable to manipulation, with Little using him as a means of facilitating his own access to young males for sexual purposes in return for the financial support he provided. Zellner further asserted Eiler's paraphilia had inadvertently increased his penchant for violence and that Little had begun to encourage her client to project his extreme self-hatred regarding his homosexuality and the conflict between his sexual preference and his religious beliefs onto other males approximately six months before the two had abducted and murdered Stephen Crockett. Furthermore, Eiler had been actively encouraged, aided, and abetted in all his sub subsequent murders by Little, who had known of all of his crimes, of course. I don't know. Oh. I don't know what to believe. Yeah. Emphasizing her belief in Eiler's confessions, Zellner elaborated that her client had been formally diagnosed with AIDS in March of 91 and therefore knew when he testified at Little's trial in the Stephen Again murder that he was dying. I believe Larry was truthful. Larry had no incentive to lie to anyone. Yeah, I did. Taking down another person. Yeah. What? And he didn't even necessarily need incentives. Some people just lie. Right. Yeah. In his posthumous... Uh, <laughs> why can't I talk? In his posthumous confession... Why can't I read at all? In his posthumous confession, Eiler stated that he had typically lured his victims, who had been both heterosexual and homosexual, with the promises of drugs, alcohol, money, or transport, and that immediately prior to stabbing several of his victims, he had pressed the blade of his knife against their abdomen before informing his victim to 
quote-unquote, make peace with God. Ew. Furthermore, Eiler claimed he had never engaged in sex with any of his victims, and he had frequently given his victims t-shirts, um, given his victims t-shirts to Robert Little to use him as master, masturbatory fantasies. Ew. That made me gag. But if that were true, why was all that blood and all that evidence in his home about Daniel Bridges, including his clothes, including his shirts? Yeah. Being washed. Like, no semen was found on it. You're full of shit, dude. Zellner stated Eiler had begun compiling a list of his victims shortly after she had been appointed as his legal representative in November of 90 in an effort to obtain a plea bargain whereby his sentence would be commuted to one of life imprisonment. With his health in gradual decline, Eiler had authorized his attorney to publicly release his confessions after his death, with his explanation being that the families of his victims would know he had confessed to the murders of their relatives. Okay. <laughs> like, it just doesn't, I don't know. But I will say that there is a list of victims that I did see and ages. Um, Stephen Crockett was 19. Edgar Underkoffler was 26. John Johnson, 25. William Lewis, 19. Stephen Agan, 23. John Roach, 21. David Block, 22. Irvin Gibson, 16. John Bartlett, 19. Michael Bauer, 22. Richard Wayne Jr., 17. Jay Reynolds, 29. Gustavo Herrera, 28. Jimmy Roberts, 18. Daniel McNeve, 21. Richard Bruce, 25. John Brandenburg Jr., 19. Ralph Khaleesi, 28. Eric Hansen, 18. And Daniel Bridges, 16. Although Eiler did not converse, uh, confess to the murders of Jay Reynolds and Eric Hansen, he is considered a strong suspect in both homicides. Wow. There are, of course, four unidentified victims still um, that remain unidentified. It's just, you know, it was, I don't know. It's sad. It's definitely a long case. Definitely a lot of information. Um, but, which I mostly found all on Wikipedia. They were very forthcoming. So it's very thorough, <laughs> with Wikipedia. All, with all of this. <laughs> very. I was kind of shocked. I really wasn't expecting a case quite this large. Um, but, yeah. I, I will say I'm glad he's gone. He deserved no mercy in death as he gave no mercy to those he murdered thank you all for listening be safe out there and watch out for the crazies bye, bye. thank you for listening to this week's episode the music titled teller of the tales was provided by kevin mcleod and can be found at incomtech.filmmusic.io